You're queen, aren't you? Except for your tower. You're a tower junkie, Roland. Hello and welcome to Tower Junkies, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Tower Junkies is a podcast celebrating the work of Stephen King with a special focus on his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series. We discuss the themes, characters, and mythology of the series in Palaver episodes, and review the books and comic series in Kef episodes. We also discuss non-Tower King novels, TV and film adaptations of King's work, and the latest news about all things that serve the King. You can find more of our work at Tower Junkies pod.com and follow us on every level of social media at tower junkies pod i'm one of your hosts matt hurt and with me today as usual is tiny in isolation yes i am isolated yes as am i um so tiny before we get into what we're actually talking about today uh just to make sure our listeners know we are recording this april 2nd 2020 as the uh, uh, country and world is on lockdown from the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, um, how you feeling? How's it going? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm actually doing okay. Uh, feeling good. No no symptoms at all. Um, and uh, still working and stuff. Uh, work has slowed down. I don't know if eventually it's going to dry up. But uh, yeah, still, still going out in the world. And, uh, you know, it's actually been encouraging um, the past week or so because like there's a noticeably less people out and about like yeah. th- there's always going to be outliers and jackasses who don't take it seriously like they should um but uh it's been somewhat encouraging especially like downtown like downtown indianapolis is fairly lively at all times mm-hmm. um and like i you know went down there on a saturday night and it was just dead like nobody out no cars um so yeah, it's it's actually kind of encouraging uh because that's what's supposed to be happening. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I uh I agree. It it has been so uh, for our day jobs, uh Tiny, <clears throat> you are an essential employee and I am an essential employee at my job too. Mm-hmm. Um so for those in the future or those unaware, um I don't know how, but um well, if those are unaware, um Indiana like the governor three, two weeks, two and a half weeks ago, I think. Um, maybe going on three weeks. I don't know. Time is not a thing now. Um, but <laughs> the governor issued a stay-at-home order for all non-essential personnel. Um, so, like, the order is, like, stay at home. Don't leave. Don't go anywhere unless you absolutely have to. Um mm. So yeah, so I absolutely have to once a week to go into the office and actually do work. Otherwise, I'm working from home. Uh, check out Obsessive Viewer, our podcast, where I am doing uh, what I'm calling COVID-19 Film Festival. So basically, episodes that I am recording mostly by myself, uh, talking about movies that I watch while uh, trapped in my apartment <laughs> during <laughs> this whole thing. So anyway... Um, yeah, it is, it is encouraging. Um, I do know that there are, like you said, outliers. Um, yeah, and that's always a bummer because we want this to end, but people don't care. So, yeah, it's frustrating. Uh, Um, but, (laughs) uh, there's a good segue here. Hang on. Um, but (laughs) let's not, let's not make the listeners 
feel down about, you know, this uh, widespread illness that's infecting thousands and thousands and thousands of people per day and leading to the death of a lot of people and everything uh, across the world. And let's, what, what are we talking about today, Tiny? <laughs> We're talking about the stand. Yes, that was a <laughs> terrible segue, and I hope that that does not come across as me being insensitive. <laughs> But anyway, um, yeah, we're talking about the stand where basically the idea for this, like we originally had planned on doing like, I, like the plan has always been to cover the stand, the novel in three parts, one for each book section of the book, um, give each of those three books, three sections, its own individual episode and then do the, uh, nineties miniseries. Um, give it its own episode and then like bank those and then release them in the lead up to the miniseries on CBS All Access. Um, I, that may still be the plan. I don't know, but I might also want to kind of have us release these episodes now, um, since the world is on fire and, uh, <laughs> we, I think it would be interesting to kind of chronicle our experience and while we talk about the stand. Um, right. Yeah, we've been planning this for a while. The, the COVID-19 is an unfortunate coincidence. <laughs> for a second, I was about to say it's, this is sort of serendipitous, but, uh, that's not, not exactly the right word because no. this is not a desirable outcome. <laughs> it's ka, tiny. It's ka. It's ka. Yeah. It is a wheel. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Oh, God. Anyway, um, yeah, scary, scary stuff though. It is very scary and, uh, um, demoralizing, really. Have you felt any of that, by the way? Like this, like, have you felt any melancholy over it at all? Yeah, yeah, somewhat. Um, it's hard not to when yeah. you see some of the effects of this. Like, uh, I, I genuinely read or see some of the healthcare workers. Um, yes read their accounts and I, I don't know how they're not just curled up in a ball crying in a corner. I, and that's, so I agree 100%. And it's yeah. one of those things where as people who listen to the obsessive viewer know, I went through a spell where I watched a lot of ER <laughs> <laughs> um, when it hit Hulu. And like, even then, like, I don't understand how people can do that type of work. Like, that type of, like, like, even, like, uh, like, triage stuff or, like, being on the front lines of a medical emergency of any type. And we even talked about that when we reviewed, um, that sports medicine or that auto racing medicine, uh, rapid response on Obsessive Viewer. I don't mm -hmm. understand, like, I, I don't understand how those types of people's brains work like just general and like seeing it in action or seeing like accounts of like the healthcare professionals that are literally saving lives every day while putting their lives on the line and their well-being on the line just to stem the flow of just death and dismay that's that's or this uh, that's that's flooding our hospitals and everything is just it's inspiring and I just, I don't, I can't, again, I can't fathom how, uh, how people don't break down entirely over it. I agree. They are truly, truly exceptional people. Yes. Um, I saw a video and I'll uh, try to dig it up and put it in the show notes of the episode, but I saw a video that was, uh, this woman who she was a nurse or something. 
um, maybe a resident, I don't know, at, at an, a hospital in New York. And she's just basically going about her day and like she's, she's filming things saying like, I don't care if I'm in trouble here, if I get in trouble for filming this, but people should know that this is what it's like right now. And it's like, it is, it's, it's unfathomable. Like it is, it is insane. Like she talks about how, um, it, like, and it's been widely reported. Like they had to bring in like refrigerated trucks to store the bodies of the deceased um, mm-hmm. because there was no more room in the morgue. Um, right. And even like in like again in New York, like they had to they brought a ship or something to have like as a fucking like hospital ship because for yeah. space. Um, and then you also have the fucking morons who watched it dock or like they went to see it ignoring the you know social distancing and self-isolation stuff Mm. it's just it's 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 fucking surreal all of this is surreal it is very surreal yeah yep um so i think the plan is that we're going to do our three-part the stand uh series of episodes and they're going to be intermittent in terms of recording, but we're going to kind of chronicle where we're at maybe each time we reconvene for this, uh, for this review series. So right now it is April 2nd. Uh, the stay at home order in Indiana was enacted on March 18th. So I think it's like 16 days since then. Um, right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, uh, if you don't listen to obsessive viewer, just to, uh, um, put it into context. Uh, today's April second in Indiana, three thousand thirty-nine positive cases of COVID nineteen in the state of Indiana. There have been seventy-eight deaths, and a total of sixteen thousand two hundred eighty-five have been tested in the state of Indiana. And uh, COVID nineteen cases have topped one million per uh, one million worldwide. With more than fifty-eight thousand deaths, and nearly two hundred nine thousand people have also recovered from it worldwide. So those are some stats. Hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Any comments on that, Tiny? <laughs> um. <laughs> uh. No, because this that number is just going to keep all those numbers are just going to keep changing, and yeah. Yeah. I I question how accurate they are because I feel like there are tens of millions of people who have it right now and just don't know it or they're exactly. asymptomatic. Exactly. Like it is like those stats are just like the, the positive cases are those are the positive cases that have come from testing. Um, right. And like there are, like you said, thousands and thousands of people. And like we reside in the, in the County that has the highest amount. And granted it's, you know, it's a big County and like populated County, but in the state of Indiana, the county we reside in have has the most positively ID'd cases of COVID nineteen in the state. So by far, yeah, uh, yeah, by a very large margin. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's that. Um, what else? I thought there was something else I was going to say on that front, but I don't know. It's uh, yeah, it has been very demoralizing and very. Uh, just it's been it's been rough yeah so yeah yeah yep uh how to transition out of this for real (laughs) i dug us into a hole 
Um, so the stand, tiny. Yeah. Um, I don't have any real notes or anything for this, so this is going to be kind of uh, something I probably shouldn't have said out loud on the podcast. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so tiny. The stand is a a big one for King, obviously. Um, it was originally published in 1978, and then it was revised and uh, updated with the complete and uncut edition in uh, 1990. So, yeah. So, Tiny, um, your history with The Stand. This will be, I think, my fourth time through the book. Nice. It's at least my third. Um, so my parents have, I'm glad you mentioned the two editions of it because my parents, I think have a first edition of the 1990 uncut or whatever, unabridged nice. version or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and they still have it. And that's how I read the book. The first time mm-hmm. was, was that copy that they have. Um, and I bought my own copy very quickly and, and read that. I, so I have a physical copy of the book, but this is my first time through it um, with the audiobook. Okay. <clears throat> so that's that's a first for me. But uh, I am a huge fan. It is a top 10 King book for me. I can't imagine it ever being outside of my top 10 because I really adore it. Um, I think I think this is one of the most accessible uh books i don't know if that's the right word but it's it's one of those books where like if you're telling someone who's never experienced stephen king to get into stephen king i think this is a a good first couple books or maybe even first book to start with i mean i i just think it's because because it's so it's it has so much character building in it which is his sort of cornerstone Mm -hmm. as a writer and and what he does best in my opinion um and there's so many other there's incredible world building. It's it's a very segmented story. It's 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 broken up in a satisfactory way. Um, so I I think it's a good place to start. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of my opinion of it. I actually have it uh, on my top nineteen King novels. It's in my number three spot right now. I was just um, bring that up. Yep. It's probably probably going to be a top five. Like it's probably going to stay a top five unless he releases some incredible shit in the next, right. uh, however many years. Um, but yeah, it's it's that good. It's it's one of his best, um, and I think it's going to stay that way. Yeah. So very good. Um, did you say that you have read the original edition before the it was updated and expanded <clears throat> and everything? I never have. I've only read the the full uncut version. Okay, same here. Um, it's interesting because the reason why that original edition exists is because the publisher was like, uh, we've got to cut this down. Like, you need to come hacksaw like 800 pages or whatever. However many yeah. pages, I don't know. Um, so it's not like it was the updated one was like, oh, we need to cash in on this. It's like, no, Stephen King's like, no, I want to put my babies back in the bassinet and release it to my nannies i don't know that kind of <laughs> kind of ran away from me that was a weird analogy it really was um but yeah like my history i have an interesting history with the stand i don't know if you will remember this but back in i want to say it was probably 2009 or maybe 2008 when you and i worked together um do you remember me you and mike 
doing a like like book club thing with it. Do you remember that at all? I do, and it lasted like ten seconds. It, it did. It did last <laughs> very shortly. Like it was. It was, was it via? Uh, was it via email? It was via email. It was via email. Which uh, yeah, yeah. And like I remember for those in the future, email is a form of communication. <laughs> uh, yes, it's a long tweet, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, and that did not last long. I didn't even—I don't even think I read the book then. Like, I think I just stopped reading it when we stopped doing that. Oh, really? Okay. I think because um, I don't—I don't know when I ended up actually reading it full on. Maybe it was around that time I, I did actually read it because I, I remember. Like I have memories of like where I was when I read certain parts of it because Stephen King is to to Stephen King is life, um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah I I read it and liked it and I've read it probably I think this is maybe my third or fourth time um, oh that's what I was gonna say so when we did that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was probably like 2007 to 2009 at some point um during that time frame and i remember specifically that i tried to get so like fake analytical into it like um and i like this is embarrassing for me but who cares um, i wanted to pick apart every little like like um uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like every similarity or like every, like, like I was reading it as if it were like some big mystery thing. Uh, and like, I, re- I distinctly remember saying like, wow, he's referred to Larry Underwood as, as, uh, as a prince, like three times. Like, what does that mean? And it's like, it, <laughs> it's a figure of speech. It's, it doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> Um, but the reason why I did that tiny was because at the time, and one of the reasons why I was so interested in even reading the book in general, at the time, you and I were huge fans of Lost. We were. Yes. And that's how the internet treated Lost for six years. And like, I was like, cause I'd, I'd heard that, um, I think Damon Lindelof or, Carlton Cuse or someone on one of the DVD special features on Lost, they were like, oh, we have a copy of The Stand in the writer's room at all times. And it's like, there are clear, like, similarities, like, uh, or influence from from The Stand in Lost. Like, it's very obvious that Charlie uh, Pace in Lost is pretty much patterned to an extent, uh, patterned, uh, patterned by or patterned with um uh larry underwood in the in the book so oh yeah yeah um and just like little things here and there but yeah it's uh but yeah anyway i I, so i read it and then i've read it a couple of times i've listened to the audiobook once and this is my second time listening to the audiobook so nice um i will say that it was bizarre for me like as an anecdote to go back to the COVID-19 stuff, um, one of the first, I think it was like the day before the, uh, the, uh, stay at home order went into effect. So it was like Tuesday the 17th or maybe it was earlier than that. I don't know when the stores were getting hit hard with, with people going to stock up and everything, um, before 
everything was shutting down and everything. Um, I went to my local grocery store and I was going through the aisles. I was picking up some essentials and picking up like just to stock up and everything. The entire time I had my headphones in and I was listening to the audiobook for the stand <laughs> um, because it was like after work, I like had been listening to it in the car on, on like in the, in the car, like not with headphones, but you know, in the car's radio. Um, and I just continued listening to it and I was just like, and it was part of book one of the stand where I was basically like listening to the virus, the super flu. I was listening to captain trips infecting the world as the world around me is like desperately grabbing as many foods and stuff to stock up for uh quarantine. So that was a, maybe one of the top three, like most bizarre Stephen King related uh, <laughs> moments of my life. Um, so. Yeah, for real. That's weird. I actually, I finished book one, like back in late January, or early February. So it was before it ever got to the U S and like, it was still isolated to China. I think I don't even think it had gotten beyond the Chinese borders when I was, finishing book one so um but it was still i there was still a lot of talk that this was going to turn into a pandemic a global pandemic and like i was i was like this is still highly poignant and and topical for what's going on in the world right now and it's uh, like i said like i said earlier it's unfortunately coincidental yeah 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 it is and uh minor nitpick um the uh, internet um, has like one of one of the things that I don't like about the internet and everything is like anytime something happens and something like something is coincidental in art or fiction of any kind. Um, there's always like a post or like an essay that's like, did so-and-so predict this thing? And it's like, no, they, they didn't <laughs> like, like, uh, a headline I saw was, um, uh, I think someone said, someone said like, did, th- I don't think they said like, did the stand predict coronavirus? Um, but it was like, I think it was like Stephen King was like, like Stephen King says, no, he didn't invent coronavirus. <laughs> like it's a different thing, <laughs> um, in the stand. I don't know. I, that's just something that gets on my nerves. Like, did, did the Simpsons predict this and this? It's like, no, the Simpsons has been, has been on for three decades. Like there's going to be coincidences and stuff. Um, right. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, that's my soapbox, but yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's been a weird time listening to the audiobook for the stand and, uh, it's been interesting to revisit it though. And we are in this episode, just going to talk about, uh, book one of the stand, which is the title is uh book one captain trips june 16th to july 4th um which also i thought it would have been cool if we released like this episode on june 16th and then the next episode in this series on july 5th because book two huh. starts at july 5th and then book three is september 7th anyway that's stupid um but anyway so yeah book one of the stand it's essentially the introduction to all of all or most of the major players of the of the story and uh it's kind of told in vignettes like different characters they they some of them intercut with one another but it's mostly like these characters experiencing the outbreak of the super flu 
and surviving it. Um, and yeah, so, uh, let's get into it. So tiny, uh, tell me book one, how did you feel about the first third of the stand? Uh, it's, it's, it's terrific. I mean, I, I love it. Um, the, just sort of tracking the virology of the virus is super fascinating. Um, which is kind of the, the main plot of, of the, the first book. Um, but it's also just, just so much setup, um, which setup can be laborious and boring and uneventful. Um, but this is not that by, by any means. Um, it's, and I think Stephen King does set up so well. He just, he paints a picture beautifully and, and he gives you well-rounded characters and, and outlines their characteristics and their mannerisms and everything so beautifully that it doesn't feel like setup. It's not a chore, right? And, and the stand is one of the best examples of that. Um, you know, he takes, I mean, it's, it's long. It's like, it's probably 300 plus pages. I mean, it's just, it's a book in and of itself, you know? Um, it's like something and, and like I mean, that, two chapters, I think. What's that? It's like 42 chapters total, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. That's a whole book. So, oh, yeah. um, yeah, I, I love it. It's, it's really, it's really interesting to see how, since I, this is my third or fourth time through it, mm-hmm. I know, how it ends and where everyone ends up and, and what happens. It's fun to, this is why it's so fun to revisit these stories is because you sort of forget where everybody started and, and, and the changes they go through throughout the book are just really drastic in some cases. Yeah. Oh, totally. and, and that's why it's so fun to come back to the beginning. And that's why the detail involved in the first act is so, satisfying Mm -hmm. to a return reader. Um, I I love it. I mean, you're going to hear me say that so much because I, this is, this book is so just so well done and just has so many things in it that I like um, that it's good. It's going to feel like a lot of gushing, not to say that there aren't issues with the book, but um, it's just so well done. It's hard to do anything other than gush over it. Oh, I totally agree. And, um, should we should we establish that we're going to be spoiling it, or should we do separate spoiler sections? I think we should just go ahead and spoil it. I mean, it's been out for 40 years. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, so going forward in this review series for Tower Junkies, we are going to be spoiling The Stand. Um, I think since we are segmenting the this, we're structuring it as three reviews through, for one full book. Um, just, you know, it'd be good to kind of read along with us, I guess. So, yeah. yeah. So for this review series, we're going to do spoilers on. So having said that, the, like you said, I, I agree completely. And I feel like that's going to be kind of an interesting experiment for this project because, uh, we're going to be agreeing a lot, I think. Um, yeah. So this, I like, like you said, the, vi- uh, the virology of the virus, like the, the way that it, kind of infects the world like he has this passage or this this whole section of the of the story where it's just outlining captain trips infecting like how it's spread and everything and there was um 
in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, he tweeted a, uh, a clip from the audiobook on a YouTube link that is just basically that whole section. And like I had retweeted it and I was like, to date, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Stephen King's work. Like, cause it is so just casually terrifying. And I don't want to say maniacal because it's just, it's not like a supernatural thing. It's just, this is how the virus is spreading and it's killing, like it's decimating most of the human race. And it's just, it's kind of just casual. And it's just kind of like this woman just touched a car, a car doorknob and now her whole family's dead because right. it spread. Like it's just. I don't think that's an actual example from it, but, but that's the basic thing. Um, and I just, I just love the way that he, that his prose takes us through that whole section of the story. Um, even if it is just culling like the population for the, the to set the stage for the, uh, the tale of dark religion, as he puts it in the forward, I think, um, <laughs> that's the kind that's come to play in the, the other, portions of the book uh, but yeah but that's one of my favorite por- favorite things that Stephen King's ever written is is that um, infection section um, yeah yeah uh, followed closely by the Lincoln Tunnel scene <laughs> <laughs> right um, there's there's so much good in this in this section of the book and I think part of that is I think cause it's it's very much um endemic i think that's a word um of the uh the way that king writes like it's it's a it's a pretty good microcosm for king's style and it's that those three sections like he has separated the stand into three sections part one is the setup part two is the more um my memory of it at least we'll talk about it soon um in an upcoming episode but um, it's more just living with these characters and, and pu- uh, pushing the plot forward. And then book three is more the like, okay, he, he's had his fun. He's put his work in. Now he just needs to end it. <laughs> and <laughs> sometimes, or a lot of times people don't really connect well with the way that he ends it. So, um, I feel like the stand as an entire work is a good, indicator of Stephen King's overall style and the trappings he falls into and the things that make him one of the great storytellers of our time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So yeah, but we'll get to all that later. Um, Book one though, (laughs) the setup is just, uh, it's, it's wonderful. Like we get, we get such insight into all of these characters, Stu, Larry, uh, um, Oh my God! What is her name? <laughs> Fucking uh, Molly Ringwald in this mini. Franny. Franny. Why did I? Why did I blank on her name? Uh, <laughs> Harold and like we get we get some very rich characters and very rich uh, character setups and yeah. Uh, how did you feel about all the character setups and everything? Uh, they're really great. I love how um how spread out everyone is um and and the the simplicity of the characters really like, like there's also like a a pretty, pretty good spectrum of characters too. So like, you know, Franny is this 20 year old girl, very 
but she's she's sort of an old soul, kind of wise, wise beyond her years in a way. And uh, she's a mature twenty year old girl. And then you have the exact opposite in Harold Lauder, yes, um, very immature sixteen year old boy. Um, but then a, a, a character as unique as Nick Andros, yes, um, just just sort of making his way through the world despite all his the obstacles he has to overcome, mm. um, and and sort of thriving isn't the right word, but uh, finding a way to make it through this crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, when he really has no business doing so with yeah. with his disabilities, um, Stu Redman, uh, the the uh, I say it all the time the the everyman, the ordinary guy, yeah. who's who he's literally it. It's not like he's just sitting there watching people die. Like he's right. thrown into the absolute eye of the storm, mm-hmm. being picked up by the government and the military and being studied like a lab rat and yeah. like. Just, just it's that's what's so cool about this particular every man, every man or ordinary guy is that he's right off the bat. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he, he, his hometown is almost the epicenter for this disease, mm-hmm. or it's one of the first places that it comes to, and uh, he's one of the first people to be discovered to be immune to it, and so as a result, he's. He's just thrown into the. He's a gas station attendant who's yeah. kind of a loser, frankly. And just the fact yeah. that he's thrown into this extraordinary situation is so, just so wild. Um, and then just to to add to the diversity, the trash can man. Um, again, just who the hell creates a character like that? That's just so. I, it's really, really out of left field, and like I feel like. Being people who've read it before, we know that he's ultimately a nefarious, mm-hmm. on the bad side, kind of a bad guy. But he's a bad guy because he's kind of crazy. Like he didn't get the help he needed when he was younger, and he's he's sort of a victim in a way. And so, like you you empathize with him to an extent because he's just sort of caught up in all this, mm-hmm. and he's kind of like an addict, and he's got. He's got all these problems. He needs help. He really needs help, but he never gets it. And as a result, he ends up on the bad side of all this. Um, and he's that, that's what makes him really interesting. But it's so easy to just look at his character and be like, he's a bad guy. He's a pyro psycho guy who's got tons of problems and he just needs to be locked away. And it's like, it's easy to make that distinction, but I think he has a lot more depth than that, uh, which really comes out in the next two books. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just the, the diversity of the, the cast of characters that he creates is like one of the most dynamic casts in all of his works. I mean, it's really incredible. I I totally agree with you and it is like Stu Redman is like the quintessential Stephen King character. Like he is a character that could have his own novel that's just that's just him doing his thing. Mm-hmm. Um and that's also somewhat uh an indicator of the of the rest of the book and the rest of the cast is that each of the characters are f- really pretty well uh realized across the board and they are on such a spectrum of just like craziness and out there-ness 
Like Stu Redman <laughs> exists in a book that the trash can man exists in as well. And it is so, yeah. it, it adds to just the sprawling nature of, of the book itself. Like we have a, a cast of like thousands that is just scattered. Like we, and then they come together in unique ways and they kind of like there's in book two, they build a society and everything. And it's, it's really, um, it's really, uh, sprawling is the word that I keep coming back to. Um, and it is one of King's greatest achievements in terms of his writing is that he's created this landscape of just completely counterbalanced and, completely different people that work together and against one another in unique ways. And that's what makes the stand one of the most, um, endearing and, uh, fascinating books, uh, of King's career. And also I forgot to mention earlier, it's my number nine. (laughs) And I feel like going through it this time, I think that that's going to change. I think it's going to jump up quite a bit. I think. Nice. Um, We didn't, we didn't mention Larry Underwood either, which he's, Super. He's very interesting because he sort of comes off as a somewhat—I don't want to say villainous character, but sort of—he has negative connotations to him, um, and it's because he's just very, very selfish. Yes. Uh, he, he's a very selfish character, but he's not like evil or bad. And it's—it's it's fun again. It's—it's it's just fun to explore his his origin. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, coming back to the book because I know how he ends up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like the, he's he's just another example. I didn't I didn't want to. There's a lot of Larry Underwood in book one. I mean, he's mm-hmm. one of the more followed characters, so I didn't want to continue on without mentioning him before, uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, his his evolution is obviously fantastic to experience. Yeah, even just his evolution in just book one itself. Like he goes from being this washed up. Uh, he's he's at the height of his at the height of his career sadly because it's a one hit wonder um <laughs> and then he goes through his downfall and like he he has to come back and he stays with his mom and that doesn't go well the super flu happens like he hooks up with uh is it Rita and like she, I think so yeah and she just like I I love that pairing because she is so um borderline like it's almost like she's um infantilized if that's the word i'm looking for yes Um, she is so dependent on on larry and that's a total drag for him Um, right and it's like it's this thing that i don't think king ever really explicitly states it but it's this it's this idea of like should you carry on that dead weight like right. like she is going to get him killed um and it's just it's it's a fascinating kind of crossroads that he puts the character in in the first third of the book like it's, yeah. it's insane i i love it yeah they're a fun pairing because he's he's very selfish mm. and he's i think his mom refers to him as a taker like he's very much a taker yeah. mm-hmm. and rita is not mm-hmm selfish and a taker but she's very needy she needs a lot and those two people just do not kinds of people do not work together they need givers in their lives and neither of them have that capability and so yeah it's a very they were destined to just fall apart and burn out yep um i love her end um 
mm-hmm. where and I love Larry's reaction to her death because she's in the sleeping bag and she's in like she's dead and he's like he's thinking about fucking her before he like realizes like oh wait she's she's dead she's she's laying there dead and like he's freaking out like how long was I laying there and like oh my god I was thinking about going and having sex with her before I realized like oh my god um I don't know I just I I thought that that was a really interesting portion of the book. Yeah, and in a way, Rita's Rita's sort of a catalyst for his the beginning of his evolution, and and I think yeah. that's pretty important that that happened so early on. I agree completely. And let's talk about the Lincoln Tunnel also while we're talking about mm. Larry. Um, that section, like, it's it's so just chilling. It's like it's a very chilling moment in the book because it's just him going through a tunnel that is just death incarnate. Um, mm-hmm. What stands out to you about it? How do you, how do you feel about it? <laughs> how uh, did you find it this time? It's, it's so immersive. You just, you feel that passage. Like you, you yeah. really feel it as a reader and that's such a skill as, as, as a writer to pull that off and make your audience feel that you feel the damp, the, the damp tunnel and the, you, you, feel like you can smell the death yes. and it's like it's like the darkness is touching your skin and like because I think I think the reason what partly why it works so well is that all of us have been in an environment like that for the most part like most of us have been in a shitty basement mm-hmm. that's like not it doesn't have a dehumidifier or whatever and it's right. damp and it's cold and dark and it mm-hmm. smells musty and weird and that's what I picture and that's what I experience whenever I read that passage. And it's, it sends chills down your spine. It's one of the most totally. memorable parts. And it's like you hear shit that's not actually there mm-hmm. because as your senses are heightened because it's so dark and shit like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's so, it's so well written and so well done that I would say it's like in the second or third place behind Danny going into room 237 in The Shining, which I, I think is still the epitome of creepy Stephen King writing. I think that's that's as good as it gets. That will live with me forever. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is up there. Yeah. The Lincoln and, Tunnel is up there. And if I if I could be a dick, it's 217. You said 237. I always make that. I can never remember yeah. which it is. Uh, do you, do you want to know how I always remember? Um, how, 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 like, the mnem- mnemonic device that I have for it? Um <laughs> Uh, it's two seventeen in the novel because two plus seventeen is nineteen. Wow! Look at you. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Stanley Kubrick had to ruin everything. I know, right? Well, technically, I think the Stanley Hotel probably did because I think wasn't the story that the Stanley Hotel was like people would come. No, the 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 hotel where they filmed it at, uh, the where Kubrick filmed it. Like I don't know where it was, but they like they. They didn't have a room 237, but they had a room 217. And if they had room 217 in the movie, people would want would bother them about room 217. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the story. That's anyway, how it goes. Um, sure. Uh, look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree with everything you said about the Lincoln Tunnel scene. Um, in like that, like we've I've we've talked about how you and I used to be security guards. Um we worked nights together and like I'm not ashamed to admit I was and probably still am to a small extent fucking terrified of like the dark and like 
Um, especially like in our job when we worked security, we would have to walk around an empty building at night where the lights weren't on and everything. And like that was legitimately just terrifying to me. Like I, like I would hear things in my head and like it would be fucking like terrifying to me. So when I read or listen to the Lincoln tunnel scene, like I am taken back to nights where I was walking a, an empty building being terrified of something in the shadows and everything, just like Larry Underwood is as he's walking through the Lincoln tunnel. And granted, I never walked on top of dead bodies or anything. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it always takes me back to it. It's, it's a weird nostalgic connection that I have to it. So, um, but yeah, the way that it's written, um, the w- King has maybe, I would, I would say it ranks up there with, with 217 also. Um, yeah. but I, King has maybe never been more scary for me. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's terrifying. It's really good. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> Uh, let's talk about Franny and Harold. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, the introduction of Franny Goldsmith is again, another kind of quintessential Stephen King characterization. Uh, she's an every person character. She is a conduit for us to like, she's to empathize with her and her situation. She's pregnant. She has her own, like idea like she's a, her own individual person who is combating like her family and and like the different choices that she has to make and everything um it's a very interesting and and good characterization and character development for her and introduction as well um to the point that i i was like it it's heart-wrenching when her dad dies and she has to bury him like it's it's tragic it's sad it's it's depressing um mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Harold enters the scene. Uh, how do you feel about this pairing and and Franny and Harold in general? Um, yeah, it's it turns out to be a very satisfying pairing. It's there's a lot of comic relief there, and uh, it's I can't help but think about where it goes mm-hmm. because we know we know what Harold turns out to be. Yeah. Um. But I, I don't know. I think um, Franny's just also, she's just so lovable. I think she's kind of like a, kind of an idyllic girl. Uh, you know, she's very idyllic girl next door. She's very attractive and she has this very, very fun quality about her where she sort of finds comedy in inappropriate situations um like she's having this very serious heart to heart with her boyfriend fling at the time telling him that she's pregnant mm. and she has this moment where she like has, has to like stifle laughter at something completely inappropriate mm-hmm. and that happens more than once throughout the yeah throughout her introduction and that's just a very i find that very attractive i guess that mm-hmm. quality in a person and uh and she's just she's just very uh, very lovable um, and to see 
someone as annoying as Harold thrust upon that kind of person. It's just like, damn it. What? You know, it's, it's like that poor freaking girl, you know? Um, and then of course at the end of, you know, literally the last scene of book one is, uh, you know, them meeting Stu. Yeah. And, and, and immediately Harold and Stu are at odds. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and just to, to throw a wrench in that scenario is just so fun. And, and, and it, Throughout book two, it's very entertaining to see and read about Stu getting under uh, Harold's skin and, you know, how they, they're at odds and, and Harold's master plan falling apart, you know, and stuff like that. It's it's entertaining. And then where it ends up is obviously not so funny, but right. uh, I don't know. It's just, it's just great storytelling again. And I, I love the pairing because it's, it's just, it, there's a lot of comic relief in it amongst all this horror and, and tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just fun. It's fun to read. I always loved, I always loved the uh, juxtaposition of Harold and, and Franny. It's, it's been one of my favorite parts of the book ever since I first read it. Me, me too. And um so to to speak on real quick just the end of the of the book the section um that i wouldn't call it a cliffhanger but like that the way that it ends with harold and and franny meeting up with Stu and Stu like talking talking harold down like sizing him up and realizing like oh this guy is this guy is a threat like he's not like he thinks that he's that he owns her and he is not like he he's just he's he's a liability and everything he's not safe um but then him talking talking Harold down like setting him aside and saying like hey I'm not in to intrude on anything like it's like you know you know as well as I do you know you know a man has needs but his hand can take care of it just as well as a woman can <laughs> Um, just like things like like the way that he just talks him down and then like that last line where it says something like something like i'm i'm not gonna fall in love with her or anything and then like the last line is like Stu was lying or Stu had no idea that he was lying or whatever right right setting up this triangle that's just so uh interesting and to kind of go back to the beginning of the section of the beginning of the the portion of the book um the introduction of Harold is so unnerving and creepy in a uh predatory kind of way and not in the traditional sense where it's like he's not like a predator that he's that he's like outright going to like do like physical harm against her but it's more so that he's he's so unadjusted un, unadjusted socially that like i like it sends kind of shivers through me whenever he calls him he calls her my child and it's yes. like it's just like i think when i was younger i would read that and think like that's funny he's an idiot but it's like now that i'm older i'm like oh god oh 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 god that's 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 just unnerving that's it's not it's unsettling in a, in a very uh um intrusive way and yeah, it's un- it's unsettling because in a normal situation he wouldn't get away with it. I agree, my child. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but be- because of the circumstance where they're the last two people that they know of, yep. it's like she's not gonna she doesn't have any choice. That's right. that's her right. only only option for social interaction. So he can basically just get away with you know. Obviously he he can't like you know 
physically harm her or right. you know take advantage of her physically or whatever but he can get away with creepy ass shit because yeah. and it's it's his warped way of establishing dominance and right failing also because like i love when she calls him out where she's like uh cut the my child shit i'm three years older than you or whatever um yeah uh, like she actually says, like it's physically impossible for me to be your child. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's just this weird thing where it's like this is the new world that they live in. That that this guy who is, by all accounts, socially unadjusted and deranged, and he has this the kind of the the flaw of Harold Harold as a character is that he has this hubris. He has this delusion of grandeur that he is meant for some higher purpose. Or that he is smarter than everyone else that he encounters. And that's a dangerous attribute to have um, because it can be manifested in a way that makes him um, unstable and uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? Unpredictable and irrational, um, which yeah. I think is sums up is summed up really well with uh, his scene with uh, Stu at the end of book one because Stu is kind of just – completely aware of, of who and what Harold is. Um, it's, it's really good. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, uh, <clears throat> ah, God, um, uh, uh, wow. What is his name? Uh, the criminal Lloyd <laughs> Lloyd Henry. You're listening to, Ta- you're listening to tower junkies, <laughs> Stephen King podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh yeah, let's talk about Lloyd Henry. Um yeah, he is one of the other like big parts of the book that really sticks sticks out to me every time I read it is the scene where he's trapped in jail. And uh or is it prison or jail? I think I don't know. But jail. He's, he's in jail and he is like he's I think he either nibbles on or thinks about eating his uh, the person in the cell next to him and like just the despair and the, the kind of depth of just horror that he is experiencing just by mm-hmm. being just left alone in this empty place, uh, with no hope of rescue is just so, Oh, it's, uh, the tone is just so, so dark and bleak. Um, how did you feel about that and about Lloyd Henry as a character as well? Yeah, it's very unsettling. Uh, his journey or especially once he's in jail and the the virus really takes hold um i love the i love the 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 self bargaining that he goes through with the cannibalism mm-hmm. um because it's it's so logical like you can totally track how a person would get there Mm-hmm. You know, we we would all like to think if we were in a dire situation like that, we would not eat, you know. But when you go through this experience with Lloyd and, and you follow his logic, you completely understand how he gets there and yeah. why he makes that decision despite how horrible, horrific it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I love that progression, the way that tracks, uh, just again, beautiful writing. Um, but I also I also sort of like the uh, his attitude where he's kind of like distancing himself or um, sort of 
what's the word I'm trying to think of? Kind of like um, making excuses for his situation. Like he he knowingly participated in these horrific crimes. Yeah, and he didn't kill anyone. Mm-hmm. But he also doesn't feel bad about anybody being. He never felt bad about anybody being dead right. until he got caught and was looking at the death penalty and stuff like that. That's when he started to feel remorseful. It's very selfish. Totally. Um, so yeah, he's obviously just a bad guy from the get go. There's no, there's no conundrum there as a reader whether or not you like this guy. There's no, there's no back door into his into empathy for this guy. You know, it's it's sort of like the trash can man. Mm -hmm. He's just a bad dude. Um, but he's going through something absolutely horrific that I, I certainly wouldn't wish on anyone. And you know, whether or not you believe in the death penalty, that's neither here nor there. I'm not a fan of it myself. Mm -hmm. Um, but like just, just, it's not right for someone to sit there and watch someone starve to death. And like, it's not, no one should have to go through that. That's just, that's just a horrific thing. Um, and it culminates beautifully by Randall flag Mm -hmm. capitalizing on that vulnerability at the end. And that's sort of our, he's mentioned, uh, up to that point, but he has no characterization up to that point. Right. We don't get we don't get dialogue from him or anything like that. But this, it's it's sort of it's not in the same arena as this, but it sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, the end of Book One of the Dark Tower, where uh, Roland and the Man in Black have their little palaver. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of my favorite scenes in all of Stephen King's writing. And this this is not that. Obviously, it's one of the same characters, right? Yeah. But uh, but um, it's it has some similar themes, and it has some some of the similar feel to that. Um, and it's it's just some some wonderfully evil exploitation going on. Absolutely. And uh, real quick, uh, Lloyd Henry, when he is in the jail cell, he talks about uh, like in, uh, just I'm I'm going to I'm going to mention a hypothetical to you and I'm already gagging at the thought of it. So you should know my answer ahead of time. But he talks <laughs> about how he ate a cockroach. Um, do you think <laughs> if you were in that position, would you do you think you would get to that point where you would need, or you would think that the protein gain from uh, <laughs> eating a how would would be worth it? Um, I I just I I really cannot see myself doing it because yeah. I would I would be so afraid that I it would make me puke, mm-hmm. and if you're already starving and dehydrated, and you try to eat a cockroach and it makes you puke. Yeah. Well, you're you're doing more damage than you are good, and so yeah. <laughs> that's that's my logic there to try to get through that answer. But <laughs> I will I will make the sort of default answer that I I have no idea how I would react if I were that hungry and that desperate. Uh, I don't know. 
I I love that you went the logical route because my like like you're like oh, I think that you know if I were to eat it and throw it up then I'd be even more dehydrated and it wouldn't be good scientifically and everything and like my my reaction is like I wouldn't do it because it's yuckers. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't yeah, I, stand bugs. Like they just freak me out and just gross me out and yeah. And yeah. so I for that reason obviously I wouldn't do it, but. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard for me to put myself in that scenario. Like when he's thinking about when he eats the rat, I'm like, I can see myself eating a rat. Like that's awful. And I obviously don't want to do that, but I can. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's my answer. Yeah. Uh, same. So Randall flag, the walking dude, the dark man. Uh, how did you feel about book one? Him, his, a uh, very slow burn introduction hinting at him. Uh, it's again, it's just great. You know, it's uh, I, I love how Stephen King leaves a lot of mystery to him up until that final, the last, you know, I don't know, 50 pages or whatever, when he, when he uh, interacts with Lloyd and, and makes the proposition with Lloyd in the, in the prison. Um, I love how kind of cat and mouse it is and sort of, He's still mysterious. Like there's no there's no mystery over whether or not he's the bad guy, but it's you just don't know to what extent, like how bad he is until he reveals himself and starts to make this proposition to Lloyd. That's when it really just jumps off the screen and you're like, Oh, this is a bad dude. Um yeah. I'm a I'm a big fan of his choices with regarding the primary villain. Mm-hmm. And the in the first the first book, it's it's very subtle. I totally agree. It's it's a good like it's good setup. It's it's good like setting the stage for uh not even setting the stage, it's more setting the uh setting the scene for the stage that we're gonna be introduced to in book two. Um yep. I just I, I love the way that he structures it and everything. Um a character we forgot to mention, Glenn Bateman, makes a very small appearance, and uh, along with the doggy Kojak, um, mm-hmm. I I love that character so much. Um, he's yeah. this sage older guy who has such wisdom about just the the social constructs of of human humankind. Um, I just I I love his his wisdom and everything. So I don't know. I just thought it was a good introduction. Did you have anything to say about that? Uh, not really. I, I, I agree with that. I, I always loved his, um, his breakdown mm-hmm. of, of like a, an apocalyptic scenario. Same. That was just so, it's just the, the logic of it and the way he parses that out is so brilliant and clever. And yeah, I, I remember that from the first time I read the book. Yeah, same here. Uh, it always stands out for me. Always the stands out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did want to mention that there, I, I didn't keep track as diligently as I could with other Stephen King references and stuff, but one did stand out to me. Um, did you catch this that in like, I don't know when it was, but, um, so, uh, Franny wakes up and, uh, finds Gus reading a paperback. Uh, that it's referred to as a Western by that woman in Haven. Uh, it's a reference to the Tommyknockers and the uh, main character whose name escapes me. Um, oh. Sorry, pizza. 
Yeah. So I just I I like that. It's a uh, just a small little interconnectivity and everything. Oh man, I didn't know. I didn't pick up on that. Yep. Yep. Oh, I just scared pizza. Um. <laughs> so yeah. Um. So is there any anyone that we f- forgot about or didn't mention? <laughs> well, we didn't really talk about Nick Andros. We um, didn't. No, I keep forgetting. He's one of my favorite Stephen King characters. <laughs> And it's because he really amps up in the second and third stories. I think that's why. Um, I forgot that he does not meet um, Tom Cullen in book one. I thought he did. Yeah, same here. Yeah. Completely forgot about that because that's when he really, his inner monologue really takes off, I think, because once he he has more interaction. Mm -hmm. Where the... yeah, and where that interaction is is so fragmented too is where where he and he has to take lead exactly he t- he does the heavy lifting there, right? Um, so, but yeah, he's an awesome character, and just yeah. just the fact that he's he's had so much uh, controversy and hardship mm-hmm. in his life, and and every day is a struggle for him. It's like a crisis like this he's kind of made for a crisis like this because his heart, his life has just been so hard that, mm-hmm. uh, he's had, the, it's, it's his right. It's, it's, it's great to see. Yeah. It's great to see his character thrive, mm-hmm. uh, even in such tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the compassion that he has, um, throughout it, like just the just the overall compassion that the character has, like he's compassion embodied essentially. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's such it's such great writing, and it's a great um, inclusion to to the rest of the cast too. Like he rounds out the cast in a really good way in terms of just having that compassionate kind of energy and uh, that. Uh, kind of methodical energy too. Like he, he's he's a very uh, I almost said soft spoken, but you know, um, he's, <laughs> he's a very uh, kind hearted and thoughtful person. Um, mm-hmm. And putting him up against the things that he gets up against to is pushed up against. I don't know um, the things that he is. Uh, up against is just it's daunting and it's it it is great characterization that he rises above all of that conflict and uh, um uh adversary or adversity there you go um, <laughs> yeah so yeah i i love his character we'll talk much more in depth in part two um about nick Andros, right. but yeah he's one of my favorite Stephen king characters yep yep um, anyone else? Anything else? No, I don't think so. Um, we covered pretty well. I think so too. Um, especially for not having really any notes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so overall thoughts on this, your third, fourth, fifth, whatever reading of the stand. Uh, how do you feel? Kind of closing uh, thoughts. How do you feel? Book one, uh, is, uh, and setting the stage for, for the story to come. Um, I, I had, again, it's just great and I'm, I'm loving it just as much as all the other times I've read the book. Um, I also, before we go, I, I sort of forgot that there's like no, there's no mention of like the journey or like the kind of team up that happens right. in book two. You know, there's no, 
I, there's no mysticism. There's no uh, supernaturality, really, in this first book. There's a little bit. Like, the dreams, uh, yeah. Yeah, are there dreams, though, in book yep. one? I don't remember. Yep. Uh, they have dreams. Like, it's very much, like, steeped in mystery and everything. It's like, uh, they, like, I don't remember who it is. Like, several of the characters have dreams of the cornfield in Nebraska. And I think maybe Stu has a dream about Mother Abigail, uh, in book one? Yeah. I don't remember that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I must not have been paying attention during that part or something. Yeah, it's it's a few, it's a bit here and there, but it is, it's it's more just uh, setting the scene and setting up the dreams and everything to come. Okay, okay. Well, I'll retract that then. I guess I, I don't know. I, th- I don't know. <laughs> I was thinking that was pretty much absent from book one, but... Uh. But it's not, by no means is it the focal point or anything. It's right, right. About the characters. And one final thing. Um, one thing that I really, I, I kind of always forget about this section of it, but, um, late in the section, late in book one, uh, King does, he doubles down on his, uh, outbreak section. Um, basically, he has a section that always stands out to me. That he says, like, um, a couple weeks after Captain Tripp's, uh, decimated the population, a second outbreak occurred. And, like, he goes through this passage of just random characters that is, it's essentially like, it's people who have survived the plague, but cannot survive and didn't, do not survive just by happenstance like there's a character who uh is immune from captain trips but she's terrified of all men and she has a gun and some guy approaches her and she fires the gun and it explodes in her face because it's never been cleaned and everything and yeah um there's like a drug addict that gets a gets um someone's stash that's that gets that like makes them overdose and everything. It's just like mm-hmm. little things like that. And, and like a guy having a heart attack after running, I think it's just like, like it's so like it's, it's an interesting, um, if I'm to attempt a sports metaphor, it's like, <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm like 90% sure I have this right. It's like King is batting cleanup. Um, he's, <laughs> He's finishing up what he started earlier with the with the outbreak stuff. Um, yeah, they're like little short stories amongst yes. the major theme. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's it's just really good writing. I, I love I love the book for that, and I love King. Nice. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for book one of the stand. Um, yep. Yeah, we are still quarantined after. So if you guys are wondering, we're. Nothing has changed in the last hour and a half. Um, I don't know why I said it like that. But um, yeah, if you're listening to this and coronavirus is still kicking around and you're still uh, holed up from it, uh, be, be safe. Um, yeah, be safe and, uh, you know, uh, wash your fucking hands. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know why I put the F-bomb in there. But yeah, uh, any parting thoughts, Tiny? Uh, M O O N. That spells quarantine. <laughs> nice. I know we're not there yet, but we're not. Um, but I, <laughs> I do. I like it. Um, yeah, yeah. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening, and uh, stay tuned for upcoming episodes where we talk more about the stand, and we've got a bunch of stuff coming up. So it's going to be fun to go through this. Let us know what you thought of book one of the stand. 
And uh, yeah, having said that, uh, long days and pleasant nights. And may you have twice the number. Boom. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Yeah, uh, I've been playing a lot of video games also. Uh, oh, sweet. Wait, what have you been playing? So, I've been playing this game called The Outer Worlds. Are you familiar with it? No. Okay, so... Imagine, if you will, I'm not going to go into all that. Basically, it's essentially <laughs> the developer who made who makes the Fallout games. It's basically them making Fallout, but like making Fallout in space. It's like a meld between Fallout and Mass Effect, essentially. Oh, cool! Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It doesn't have that. It's missing something. Like I don't feel like as absorbed in the world as I would like to be. Like I would with Fallout or Mass Effect, for that matter. But yeah, it's a it's a fun distraction. Um, yeah. Okay. Tower Junkies is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to TowerJunkiesPod.com/archive. You can also like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash towerjunkiespod and follow us on Twitter at towerjunkiespod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is just a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at towerjunkiespod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. For official Obsessive Viewer merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, visit our Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for obsessiveviewer at tpublic.com. For information about our annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at ObsessiveViewer.com, and on Twitter, at ObsessiveViewer. You can also find Anthology, Matt's solo podcast covering The Twilight Zone, and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology TV shows at AnthologyPod.com and OVAnthologyPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective. Tiny Side Project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Music for the podcast is provided with permission from Fingers T on YouTube. Additional bumper music is provided courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash as good as it gets band. Thank you so much for listening. Long days and pleasant nights. Kitty. Yeah. All right. Cool. Good stuff. That was oh, fun. That was that was very fun. Um
And then, yeah, I'll, so I, I started re-listening to Under the Dome, and I'm like halfway through it now, so I will probably, I'll probably resume the stand maybe Tuesday next week. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I'll, uh, I mean, I'll just be listening as I drive for work and stuff like that, so. Okay. Cool, cool. And we will reconvene and do this again at some point. Yeah, good oh, shit, man. Yeah, good shit. And then I'll talk to you probably sometime if you want to record next week the Doctor Sleep movie review. Yeah, we should do that. Yeah. Yep. It's uh, it's been a while. So did yeah. did we review the book already? We did. Yeah. I thought we did. Okay. Yeah, I, I just haven't posted it yet. I'll probably do that tomorrow. Um, Sweet. Okay. Yep. 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 All right. Well, All right, man. Good times. Yep. I'll see you later. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.